0: Some people dunk. Some people sprinkle. Some people wait for you to become a Christian, while others baptize babies. Why get baptized at all? Does it save you? We're going to be unpacking all of that in tonight's mini-TOT, featuring us, or Nueva, Team Believers Baptism, and Juan Carlos, Team Covenantal Baptism. Welcome to the showdown. All right, we're going to begin with Juan Carlos. I'm going to give you 10-ish minutes. So, uh, take it away, sorry.
1: Thank you so much. So, I think my my approach to to this question on on baptism this evening will be uh, more just as as a pastor and how would I answer a congregant that would come and ask a question about whether or not infant baptism is something that we ought to pursue. And and of course, the answer to that question, in a a sense, is at the very least a summarizing of 2,100 years of redemptive history. And so, we'll try to do that in 10 minutes. Uh, (laughs) we'll, We'll see how that works but uh by the way so i'll start by saying this that the presbyterian position on this we would affirm broadly speaking credo-baptism so it's really not from the presbyterian perspective it's not credo or paedo believers baptism or infant baptism it's the the question is so we would all we would agree that when an adult uh comes to know the lord that there ought to be a profession of faith and then baptism ought to follow after that. But the question I, I think we need to answer this evening is, in God's economy of salvation, are children of believers part of God's covenant community, and so should they receive the sign of covenant membership? Okay? In God's economy of salvation, are children of believers part of God's covenant community, and if so should they receive the sign of covenant membership? So... Now, a question, I think that's good to kick that off, is why are we condemned at conception, right? How is this fair? Uh, You have David saying in Psalm 51, for example, that in sin did another conceive me. How is it fair that before we're born, or certainly at birth, we already carry the guilt of sin upon us, as scripture teaches? Why is that fair? And then the, the flip side of that, of course, is how can we expect to be saved through the good works of another? And you recall in Second Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to the sin who you knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right. So in both cases, whether it's our being condemned before birth, but also... Being saved through the perfect obedience that is required of us, but that we ourselves don't meet, but another meets on our behalf, how are either of those two fair? I think the answer to that is covenant. The covenant is presupposed in Scripture. This idea that there is a federal head, a, a representative that uh, hasn't goes with him so it goes with anybody that is in in his household anybody that is united to him in some uh, significant way and so therefore covenant is the hermeneutical key to understand i would say to understand the bible to understand redemptive history certainly to understand this issue of baptism and just you know, the, the idea of covenant is sometimes uh, can be difficult to understand, but actually it is, is really isn't. And we participate in covenants all the time. An illustration that I like to use with children, for example, when I'm trying to explain this concept, is that of a of a power covenant, right? If, if my kids arrive from school and they go into their rooms and they turn the light on, they flip the light switch, they expect that the light's going to turn on. Now, why would they have that expectation? They, they haven't done anything to deserve that light turning on, but the reason why they expect it is because they're part of the household in which their parents have entered into a covenant with the power company, the power company says basically this. If you agree to these terms, if you pay us this amount, then we will offer you, we will give you, we will supply the power. And it's not just you who are paying, but anybody in your household will benefit from this. So that's great if you're a child, because you haven't paid a thing, and yet you can enjoy power. But the flip side is also true. If, by that very covenant, if your parents don't pay, if they don't fulfill their obligations, then you too will suffer, even though, in a sense, it's not your fault. Right? That's a covenant. And, and so we all partake in covenants in various ways. Now, God relates to man by way of covenants. In uh, Genesis 2.17, at the very beginning of Scripture, we see that um, there is a covenant, what's called in, uh, in, in, theo- in theological terms, a covenant of works, sometimes a covenant of life. Uh, and, and this covenant of works basically is this. Um, God tells Adam, he enters into a covenant with him, and says, if you, uh, if you eat, it's put negatively in the scriptures, if you eat, from, you eat from the fruit of any tree, but if you eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will surely die. Now, there is a tree of life that is there, and in the context, not just of Genesis, but certainly in the context of the, all Scripture, what it becomes clear is that that tree of life represents eternal life. And the, the flip side of the of that covenant is, of course, if there is perfect obedience by Adam, then he will be able to enjoy the fruit of the tree of life, and he will be able to enjoy eternal life. Of course, Adam fails in that, and he is condemned because of that, but it's not just Adam that is condemned it's all his posterity as well um, we see at the end of, of, of the Bible in Revelation um, in chapter 2 verse 7 we see Jesus uh, in, in the vision of uh, or the letter of the church in Ephesus Jesus, as the righteous one, as the second Adam who did fulfill everything perfectly, he promises to the one who conquers to eat from the tree of life. So we see that he has done what Adam could not do. The concept of covenant uh, from Genesis to Revelation is present and it's instrumental to understand the story of redemption. Now, of course, again, Adam sins, he falls, but God graciously, instead of just bringing death and, and leaving him in that state of death and his posterity after him, he enters into a, not a new covenant, a covenant of grace with them. In Genesis 3.15 we see that what's known as the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. And what's promised there is that um, God promises that there will be one that is a a seed of woman who will one day come and crush the serpent's head, crush the skull of the serpent. And uh, of course we see that fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ, even at the place of the skull in Golgotha where the cross you might see as, as a as a sword that is driven through the skull of the serpent as he is that seed of woman that fulfills that promise of grace that is given there in the garden. Now, the rest of redemptive history, the rest of the Bible is simply an unfolding of this covenant of grace, of this promise that is given to Adam and Eve, even as they leave the garden. uh, They, who have been the only creatures in the image of God, they leave the garden now, uh, covered literally in animal skin. They look like a beast uh, because of the decisions they've made, and yet, graciously, God nevertheless provides a promise of redemption that is coming to them. The, the covenant of grace is given to us in the history of redemption in various administrations. We have the Noahic covenant. A covenant that God meets with Noah and his family, the, and, and of course, a sign given the rainbow, uh, he will never again flood the earth. That allows that covenant of grace to actually unfold in history for that seed of woman to eventually come. We have the covenant, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. There's still all different administrations of the covenant of grace. Genesis 12, God promises that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 15, a covenant is cut there, and the ancient tradition was that when, when a covenant was made, um, animals would be cut in half, and then typically the lesser of the two parties would walk through the cut animal skins to invoke a curse upon himself if the covenant was broken by he, by him or by his household, his nation, etc. Interestingly, in Genesis fifteen, at that very moment when Abraham is supposed to go through this, uh, through these animals, these carcasses, he is uh, paralyzed as a dead. And he sees this torch, he sees smoke and light going through these carcasses. And it's an astonishing thing because then when God leads his people through the wilderness, of course, it, it will be a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And here we have a type of that. It is God himself who takes this self-maledictory curse, essentially saying, if this, if this covenant that I'm making with you is broken, I myself will take the curse. No explanation is given, but of course, in the fullness of time, we see Christ on the cross becoming a curse for us. Now, Genesis 17 is a key text in our understanding of this. And that is because at Genesis 17, God instructs Abraham. Once again, reaffirms his promise that... Uh, he will be the father of many nations, and through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he gives them a sign. He says that he and every male in his household, every male in his household, including infants at eight days old, are to receive the sign of the covenant, and that's the sign of circumcision. Interestingly, it is, you note know, the fact that it is a cutting of the foreskin, it is given to the male sexual organ, and I think that is significant because it is it represents this idea that um, through through Adam and his posterity, this curse of sin is is given, well, God in this very sign is representing that one is coming for whom this, uh, where, where the sin will be broken, this curse will be broken, and there will be, uh, the defilement will no longer be there. Abraham and his children are to receive it. Ishmael, interestingly, is the first infant to receive it. Ishmael is not a child of promise, and yet he receives it nonetheless because he's in the household. Isaac, of course, receives it as well. Um... Uh, the Mosaic Covenant uh, is, is after that we have the law being given a lot we can say for the interest of time I won't get into that right now the Davidic Covenant of course the promise that through the line of David uh, God will build him a house uh, and that is a a, a a royal house and through him the king of kings will come eventually one who will keep the law perfectly one who will reign uh, forever sit on the throne forever but notice that in Matt one, Matthew 1-1, one, one, how does the gospel according to Matthew begin the very first uh, book in the New Testament the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Again, this promise given to Abraham, this promise given to David, is very much in view uh, in, in the evangelist Matthew. So he begins the New Testament, and he says, uh, and he is saying, this covenant promise is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All right, so by the time the first century comes where are we with time by the way <laughs>
0: uh, you're up. oh my but, goodness okay, take okay, a couple well a well, yeah. couple
1: minutes and then <laughs> you yeah. two we'll get to the end but, um, <laughs> by the time by the time we get to
2: the True first pastor. century here's,
1: here's, here's, <laughs> by the time we get to the first century the, who who is who has covenant membership uh, in, in the Jewish household. Well, it is, if the head of the house is Jewish, then his whole household it has covenant membership. And the males, including infants, receive the sign of covenant membership. This has been so for 2100 years, since the days of Abraham, by the time the first century comes along. What about women? Are women part of the covenant? Yes, they are. They don't receive the sign, but their standing is uh, is attached to the, the male, the Jewish male that they are attached to, as, 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 as little girls, as through their father. As women, is through their husband, okay? The Messiah is the long-awaited seed of woman who finally comes. Romans 5 tells us that he is, he is a second Adam, and, and the distinction made there by Paul is that whereas if you are in Adam, you are in sin, if you are in Christ, you no longer are in sin, through the sins of Adam, the many were made sinners, through the righteousness of Christ, the many will be saved. Um, males, um, and, and so now, by the way, the beauty of this is that just like women in the Old Testament, uh, their standing before God had to do with the, the standing of the male that they were attached to. Well, who is this seed of woman? This is the bridegroom. This is the, the husband that we've all, all been waiting for. And our standing as the church is connected to covenantally connected to this perfect Jewish man whose righteousness will receive because we are connected to him by covenant. And so therefore, anybody in the household of Jesus Christ is a member of the covenant. In Galatians 3, by the way, Paul tells us that in Jesus Christ, if you've been baptized into Jesus Christ, you are ne- neither Jew nor Greek, you are neither slave nor, nor free. You are neither male nor female. These are household terms that, that Paul is highlighting here. And he says, everyone is a member of the household and everyone is receives the sign. It's a household issue still. It's a covenant issue. And um, and so the beauty is that we receive the sign, which is now baptism, both male and female, uh, child still, um, because of Jesus Christ. I will just, I'll end with this for now. And that is that... Um, Again, for 2100 years, children have been a part of the covenant, and, and infant males receive the sign. Nowhere in scripture does it say, in the New Testament, that infants are no longer included. And it would be very difficult to tell the Jewish people, who are, who are the majority of the church in the first century, that this covenant is more expansive, that it is better and in fact, as, as as Peter preaches at Pentecost, that, it, that it, is, it is for you and for your children, and to anyone who is far off, anyone whom the Lord calls, however. It doesn't include infants anymore. No Jewish person would say, "Yes, this is a better, more gracious covenant." So, never is it abrogated. There's no reason for us to believe that it's been abrogated. There is no controversy in the early church, and even certainly not even in Scripture, with respect to children no longer being a part. And so, therefore, we are to assume that uh, the biblical position is the covenantal position, that the children are very much a part of the covenant, and therefore should receive the sign. Uh, boys and girls male and female uh, Jew, Jew, Jew slave, and green slave awesome that was awesome uh,
0: if you're listening on the podcast you just got a free seminary class in covenant <laughs> theology so I appreciate that um, alright so since he took some extra time you get some extra time uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to Oscar Villanueva to give us your thoughts go oh, I am gonna ask you to like, tilt that movie just a little bit away from where that noise is. yeah
3: perfect go
2: all right. Well, Carlos, thank you so much again for that lesson. Um, I think it could be rightly said that within the confines of this room, born of a woman, there is no greater theologian. Aww. I am not even worthy to untie his Brook brother's <laughs> wingtips.
3: <laughs> 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 In
2: you
1: were talking about me. this oh, like, Where
2: is this No, yeah, I'm not going to filibuster just with praise and adoration for Juan Carlos, but uh, of the people that I've been able to come across who really take their theology seriously, I definitely give my hearty amen to all your preparation uh, and really all your dedication to the sake of the gospel. Now, um, in my moving away from the Presbyterian position on infant baptism, uh, one question that really pressed in on me that I really had to answer um, is this question of who is the church? Who makes up the church? Because while uh, I thought that it was beautifully done, you know, creating that link between Old Testament covenant theology and what's going on in the New Testament, uh, I don't from that infer that the church is made up of people who take the sign of the covenant, Okay, or who have the sign of the covenant uh, imposed on them. I don't think that you could call infant baptism anything else but uh, something that is done for a child or to a child without any agency on the child's behalf. And uh, I hope you see where I'm going with this. Because if the church uh, is <clears throat> comprised of everyone who has ever been baptized as an infant, I don't know if that's what you would say, but I'm just proposing a situation here, then I think we would have to conclude that there are a lot of uh, baptized non-Christians in our pews, okay? I'm going to say that again, that there are a lot of baptized non-Christians in our churches. So, again, who comprises the church? Uh, On the other hand, though, I would suggest that there are a lot of non-baptized Christians, in many Baptist churches And of course what I mean by that Are people that have confessed Christ profess faith Placed their eternal destiny uh, On the Lord Jesus Christ Like it tells us in Romans Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved So you actually end up having uh, What I would think is correct Non-baptized Christians who make up the church. And they're only not yet baptized because maybe they haven't, uh, you know, made that decision. They haven't actually come under the conviction that baptizing uh, is a necessary sacrament. It's a command. Um, So I hope that everyone's following so far that uh, if we want to concede that anyone who is baptized as an infant is part of the covenant family, then we would have to say that we have non-believing people in that family uh I think we could all think of people who were baptized as infants, who are non-believers, who are atheists, agnostics, uh, who have rejected and walked away from the faith. I know for a fact that there are people in this room who know such individuals. So this I think poses a problem, right Is the church made up of people who are not, actually believers or not see when I read about the bride of Christ uh, God is going to present her to his son uh, undefiled and spotless without wrinkle as it were that's not talking about your complexion ladies it's talking about her garments Uh, though we would all want to go back to that point I'm sure Uh, and so again are we going to have non-believers as part of that covenant okay Uh, And here I'm just kind of addressing the link that we're making from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Does the church supersede the people of Israel? Does the church replace the people of Israel in God's plans, uh, in God's outworking of his uh, redemptive plan? And my inclination is to say no. I would say that the church is something other than the nation of Israel. Now, I'm not going to get into uh, replacing placement theology or its demerits or even dispensational theology, because that's not really what this is talking about. And I wouldn't even call myself a dispensationalist, but I think that something new is happening, that a new body is created when the church is instituted as now Christ means of redemption for the world. So we look at Matthew 28:19. Jesus says, go ye therefore and make disciples. That's the first step. Uh, Baptizing them in the name of the uh, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the second step. Teaching them all of the things that I have taught you. Well, in order to be a disciple, one would have to actually want to be a disciple. Well, one would have to have uh, believed and now want to follow. And then basically, as far as I'm concerned, one of the first steps in being a disciple and following is to take baptism. Uh, Acts 2.38 Also makes uh, a similar command, a similar demand of the new believer. Uh, Peter is preaching to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, and after they've been cut to the heart, they respond by asking, What shall we do now? And Peter responds, Repent, here's our first part, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which I believe is the promise that is spoken of. Uh, and yes, of course, it does say that this promise will be for you and for your children and for those who are afar off. Uh, those being who are far off, I would say, are the Gentile peoples. But the children, I don't necessarily infer, have to do... Um, in that phraseology In that kind of vernacular uh, With children directly Unless those children can repent of course Unless those children are to repent But of generations and generations Following And you asked me why, Well, Why are you focusing so much So specifically on grammar and order And words and these sorts of things Well because I don't hold uh, Exclusively to Uh, hermeneutical framework of covenant theology, I would say that my framework is just effectively the verbal plenary plenary inspiration of scripture, that the words mean what they say, they say what they mean, and that rightly understood they're not going to ever contradict themselves. Uh, So I affirm that The New Testament does not abrogate the Old Testament. I'm not here doing some kind of Andy Stanley thing trying to unhitch myself from the Old Testament. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that a new thing is happening with the church that is not a continuation of the people of Israel. So let's look at the example of Christ. Christ himself was circumcised. Um, The perfect Jew, one would say, but Christ still took baptism. Uh, All of his disciples were Jews Jews taking baptism, and also baptizing others, others who have repented, others who have believed. Also, I would suggest to you that the word itself that is used in the Greek, baptizo, um, if we were to look it up in a concordance, the very plain and literal meaning of that word is to submerge, or to dunk, uh, to dip in. Uh, and another word that I actually really quite like is to overwhelm, okay? I don't know that anyone has ever been overwhelmed by a little splash, uh, on their forehead or even a bit of a pouring over, uh, but that overwhelming experience absolutely happened to Jesus when he came out of the waters. And then we, uh, heard the father's approval and we saw the dove come and rest, uh, right above him, uh. And so the formula, as far as order, to me seems that one believes, it's hard to repent without belief, and then one is baptized, and you go on to live out your Christian life in discipleship. Um, I also would look to the rest of the book of Acts, which is where we see the practices of the church. Now... Here I would say that both Juan Carlos and I have to, on some level, try, and I think this is where you want to be very careful, try to make an argument from silence. Uh, I would charge that at no point can we uh, identify any infants actually being baptized or that it's described that way. Um, In the same way that I cannot 100% certify that no one in the household was of a certain Young age where I could charge that they were all adults, right? But my view here is that we would have to be very careful not to make a huge leap one way or another, right? And so saying that this term household would necessarily imply that there must have been infants there, I think is a bit of a logical reach, a bit of a logical leap in the same way that I think it would be a logical leap to say that there were absolutely none so uh, let's call that a tie if you want to call it that way, but then I would appeal then I would appeal to the book of Romans and if you would allow me to read from my Bible quickly uh, the book of Romans in In chapter six, verse three, it says, or do you not know that all of of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death, but then what follows on that is we're also resurrected into new life. And I would suggest to you that the reason why baptism is the perfect picture of us identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is because we actually come under the surface of the water, so signifying the death of the old man, right? The old man is gone, and now as we come out of the water, we are... Are identifying with Jesus's resurrection, uh, and over and over we see this language of into being baptized into Christ, being you know identifying into Christ with His death, and so on. And again, you might be asking, "Well, why are you so hinged on these words?" I think that words matter, even the very small ones. And for this, I would just um, give you a, an example. I don't know if there's any Catholics in the room, but a lot of <laughs> but. And again, this is just an example of showing uh, how much individual, even small words matter. The order of words matter. So uh, when I've spoken to students who are formerly Catholic or, or still currently, uh, they talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary as a doctrine that is very near and dear to them. And, you know, without being too graphic, I ask them, why do you believe that? Well, it's just what well, we've been taught. And I was like, well, don't you know that Jesus had brothers? And so I might, I, I might show them where James identifies himself and Jude identifies himself. And as a matter of fact, in the Gospels, uh, the charge is made against Jesus. Like, we know this guy. We know his parents. We know his siblings. And so they would have to use uh, a translation of brothers and sisters that actually uh, means cousins as far as they're concerned, where I think that the Greeks had a word for cousin and so i so I speak to my students and I say, "Okay, listen, let me take you back a little bit. Um, the word "know" in the scriptures means in a marital context to have conjugal relations and to know your spouse sexually, and it says that Mary didn't know Joseph, and if anyone can say it with me until okay, until after Jesus is born and this is just one example of how as far as my As far as I'm concerned, in my view, it's very, very important for us to take the words for what they say, for what they mean, the order in which they're stated, and to be very careful even about the prepositions that surround the word baptism. Um, I think that each time in the book of Acts that you see even households, to concede that point, being baptized, it was after they heard and after they believed. And you see this pattern over and over Whether it's with Cornelius uh, Or Lydia They heard And they believed And baptism doesn't happen until after that So I'll just leave it there for now Yay, thank
0: you Alright, who do we think won? I'm joking, we're not going to do that um, uh, I will say, it's funny I showed the person next to me I'm saying that because we're on a podcast With here Uh, This is uh, Juan Carlos speaking. This is Oscar speaking. So it's a good thing that you were the one talking when the party was happening. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pass the mic back to you. I'm just going to let you guys kind of go back and forth a little bit. If I notice, I don't think this will happen, but if I notice one of you is really in the mic, right, I will step in. But you guys love each other. So um, Juan Carlos, I'm going to ask if you want to maybe start by some things that you heard Oscar say and kind of push back or ask questions. And then I'm just going to let you all go for as long as I want to until we decide to move us along. Sound good? 10 15
1: minutes, something like that. Okay, here you go. Sounds great. So you got to eat the mic as well, Yes. Right? Yeah. Thank, thank you, Oscar. Thank you, thank, thank you for your very clear presentation. So I think you you ask a great question. Who makes up the church? And, you know, interestingly, it's, it's a different... It's phrased differently, but my my question when I started my uh, statement was, are children of believers part of God's covenant community, and if so, should they receive the sign of covenant membership? Not exactly the same thing, right? Who makes up the church? I was asking are children of believers, okay? And so those are two different things, and and certainly in the way that's understood uh, in Reformed theology. In Reformed theology, we make a distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. The distinction is that the visible church is the church, of, is the church that we see, uh, the church that, that is made up of believers and their children, um, and, and who, who, who profess those who profess faith, I should say, those who profess faith in Christ and their children. There are some of those, even those who profess faith, uh, who are not actually believers, uh, and. But, but they still make up the visible church the invisible church uh, is the distinctive is that it, the invisible church is those who actually believe and of course we can't understand the, discern the heart of people whether or not they believe we have reason to believe both what God does of course and we ourselves can have assurance of our salvation because the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, so we are heirs. So we can have assurance of our own salvation, but not the salvation of another So, that that being said then, um, your your objection, um, Oscar, with respect to, you know, we know a lot of infants who, or a lot of people who might have been baptized as infants, who then apostatize, who then don't believe, and that's, that's a problem for the church. Well, isn't it true though, that we also know a lot of adults? who are, you know, who are baptized as adults, and then apostatize. Um, and therefore, it may be a difference in number. You might say, well, yes, but there's more infants, more more people who apostatize who were baptized as infants than those who would, uh, you know, be baptized as adults. Would you not say that the problem itself, though, because there's certainly many that we would all know that were baptized as adults, that, that particular objection would apply both to Baptists uh, and to Presbyterians, uh, Um, and and so therefore wouldn't that objection at face value then be invalid what what,
2: what do you say to that Um, yeah I don't disagree that there are um, people who would profess Christ right Jesus himself says that many will say to me on that day Lord Lord uh, did we not cast out devils in your name and so on Uh, I think we know the scripture but Jesus is going to say to them depart from me I never knew you Uh, I think my my reason for bringing up that particular objection is to to say that I don't yet have kids, um, whether I have kids naturally or otherwise, I am going to impress upon them the absolute necessity of taking ownership of their own faith uh, and not... Uh, have them somehow be and here I'm not just talking about Presbyterians because there's people in Anglican communions and uh, Lutheran and even Catholic communions who on some level because they're I would suggest poorly taught or just haven't really uh, taken ownership of their own faith in in study and in practice uh, who are unfortunately under the impression that they are in the family in the body of Christ and saved as it were um, I mean, both of us having grown up in, in a Catholic context, or at least being uh, baptized into a Catholic context, you, you have for a dearth of explanation, unfortunately, people who would stake their claim of salvation or being in the family of God or uh, belonging to Holy Mother Church as effectively just the fact that they were baptized when they were younger and they continue to do the sacraments and so on. But they never actually took ownership of their own faith. And um, I just think that it's... a. Uh, it's a dangerous proposition for the child and also a, a potential setting oneself up for heartbreak when the child does walk away. Because uh, then it would suggest to me, like, well, what did we do that for? Um, <laughs> baptizing them as an infant rather than to perhaps dedicate them or consecrate them uh, and teach them and raise them in the admonition of the Lord. Uh, without necessarily bringing in covenantal language because to me covenants are binding uh, especially if they're unilateral coming from God and so on Uh, and there's just an extra level of seriousness and weight that happens with such a powerful sign you would say that it's a sign uh, Anglicans and Even uh, Catholics would say it's actually a seal. Yeah, you would say it's a sign and a seal. Uh, Would you say that the seal is only like retroactively applied or only retroactively discerned and understood? How would you go about that?
1: Seal in the sense that it it, it bears the stamp of God's authority. Uh, So a seal in that sense, right? Like kind of signatory. And so seals it. So in other words, this is a this is a sign that is ordered by God and that is effectual in God's own timing for salvation. If that child, let's say in the case of an infant, grows and, and, and doesn't need manifestation of Christ, um, it is effectual to salvation or it is effectual Unto um, judgment in the sense that having having tasted of the, of the um, graces of being part of the church if you then reject that then there will be consequences for them but it's always effectual and that's time, whether for salvation or for judgment
2: yeah I mean I think we have a totally different interpretation of those passages in Hebrews which I think is what you're referring to Hebrews 6 I think
1: oh well Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10 with respect to people walking away yes. right
2: right um so I mean I'm even just hearing it out loud I'm, it, it definitely like stirs my spirit in a way to say that it's both a sign and a seal because um, in my view or in my interpretation of that language, if God is sealing something um, then sealing him with his insignia, with his name, like we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to resurrect us and unite us to Christ when Christ comes back. And so to use the language of the seal to me almost feels like it it has a dual purpose in a a way that I don't see in the the text, and that I would rather think of it as an unsealing.
1: Go ahead. It's related to it. You mentioned that in the case of infant baptism, right? Why, why would you bring up a child in this? Why would you give this this sacrament to a child uh, when when you don't know what, where that, how that child's going to go? It's almost da- that it's dangerous because they can then presume things about their own faith as a brother that are not true. Would you say that um, those infants that were circumcised in the Old Testament, that it was wrong, that it was dangerous for God to suggest such a thing? For example, of Ishmael, the first one to receive the sign, somebody that God explicitly says this is not the child of promise. And yet, God orders Abraham, because he's in his household, you give him the sign. And what does this sign represent? This represents my covenant with you, so much so that if you don't receive the sign, you are cut off. So that that the tie between the sign and the thing signified is so intense that to not have it is to not be part of the covenant. It's God therefore introducing danger into Abraham and his, and his progeny by giving a sign that not only may not result in the salvation of the child, but in fact will not in the case of Ishmael, in the case of Esau, and others. Why, why would it be okay that that God's covenant people are uh, God orders his covenant people and particularly the, the males on a part of his covenant household, whether or not they are actually in the promise to receive the sign, why would that be okay in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, but not okay in the New Covenant? What, what has changed? What fundamental change has happened in the New Covenant that now children who are part of the covenant, you can presume it, are no longer
2: blood. What fundamental things happened that we're not about to do Yeah, um I again I'm not saying that there is a definitive break in God's plan of redemption, I think that we've always been saved through faith, uh, because of God is gracious, because God is merciful. So, in that sense, what saves you is not whether or not you're circumcised, uh, and what saves you, by the way, is also not whether or not you're baptized as an adult or as a baby. I, I would reject baptismal regeneration like wholesale. Uh, but what I what I don't infer is that there's a superimposition of the right of circumcision onto the rite of Baptist, oh, sorry, baptism, uh, that there's like a one-to-one analog that occurs there. Uh, especially, and some of the people in the room know I'm not the most egalitarian, um, but yeah, I would say that baptism is open to everyone regardless of race, and especially gender, here's what I'm talking about. And so if if it were somehow... A direct one-to-one analog that we would only have the male children uh, be baptized, and that's not the case, as we see, for example, with Lydia and other women that are very clearly baptized. Um, so that this leads me to think or to infer that there's a, something new that's happening, uh, and it also. I also, sorry, arrive at that conclusion by the fact that when you have the first kind of like major council to settle a dispute, the council in Jerusalem there, where the issue is whether or not newly converted Gentiles are to be circumcised, um, the clear answer is no. They don't have to. Um, and it seems to me, and again you may charge that this is an argument from science, but it seems to me that something so important as the in my view, one of the only two sacraments that we have, one being uh, baptism and two being observing communion or the Lord's Supper, the Mass, the Eucharist, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, that those those two are so important and vital to the life of the new church. They're instituted by Christ that if there had been any issue with baptism, uh, either to make a positive argument for who's supposed to be baptized, which I think is already made by Who's supposed to be baptized? Those who repent. uh, Or that, that circumcision just continues on that it would have been dealt with right there in that first council. And what you do have is a basically rejection of circumcision for... Gentiles, but a new imposition of baptism as the ordinance, and that's actually open to anyone.
0: I'm going to jump in here for a second. We just have a few more minutes left for this back and forth, and uh, Juan Carlos put a couple things out there for you to respond to, but I wanted you to be able to, if you have anything you wanted to ask him to clarify, sort of take the offensive as, as it were, if you want, or
2: we can just keep it going the way this Sure, sure. So, I guess, if The audience is like just discerning and really paying attention. This kind of really goes, comes down to whether we think that um, the church is an extension or a replacement of the people of Israel. Would you say that they are? The church is an extension or that the Jewish nation is no longer the chosen people or the elect? How, how, how would you address that? Yeah, I
1: think mean, that's a great question. Uh, you know, Israel, I guess, I guess a, way, a way you can define Israel is those who are uh, Abraham is a patriarch, the ultimate patriarch of Israel. And so uh, those who are part of Abraham's family are Israel. Now it became a nation. A nation. It was a theocracy. Right. So there's aspects to the state of Israel, or to the nation of Israel, that that came to an end, you could say. But but there, the, the tie of the people of Israel was to Abraham. Paul, I think, it gives us a very helpful answer to your question, which is a good question. But I, I will I will agree with Paul here. So in Galatians three, beginning with verse twenty-five, Paul says this. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, Israel, of course, was, God calls Israel my son in the Old Testament, but here he is saying, you are all, speaking to Gentiles, you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You are so covenantally united to this second Adam, to this new federal head, that you you have have put on Christ. There is no distinction now in, in this covenantal sense. Um, he goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Very, very significant statement there from Paul. Again, in, the, in terms of households, sometimes a household would have Gentiles in it. Sometimes, sometimes those Gentiles would be slaves. So he goes on to say, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now what promise is he referring to? Is he referring to the new promise? No. In the Conscious Relations he's referring to the very same promise that he had made to Abraham that the Jewish people had held on to. And then now he is saying, because you are united to Christ, that promise is yours. In fact, you are Abraham's offspring, and you are heirs according to that very promise. So it's not a replacement theology. I would, I would reject that nomenclature for it. It is a fulfillment theology. It is it is everything that the, the that the people of Israel were supposed to do. The reason they existed was so that this perfect Messiah would come, and now in the fullness of time, everything has been accomplished in and through Him, so that He will come. So yes and amen. So I, I think that there's no distinction. I think that whether you, you know, these, these categories that we have today with, with, with respect to ethnicity, for example, are completely foreign to the text. that you know, we read back into it you now for, for other reasons. But I, I don't think you can be more explicit than what Paul has been here. With respect to the Council of, of uh, Jerusalem that you mentioned, I think the, re, the, the the real question, again, going back to your point of argument from silence, and I would agree you know, that there, that has limitations. But clearly circumcision and table fellowship were very important issues for the Jew that were markers, identity markers for them as a people. And now that Gentiles were coming in and were having the same status as they were, these were things that were had, that had to be resolved. And so you see a council specifically um, given for that reason. But what you don't see is children suddenly after two millennia no longer being part of god's family no longer receiving the sign and and so therefore there's no controversy there is no counsel i dare say that it would have been worse for a jewish slaughter if suddenly his son we no longer to receive, be allowed to receive the sign of covenant membership. If his daughter was no longer a covenant child uh, in, in his new covenant, then whether or not I can have table fellowship with a Gentile. I'm gonna steal this
0: from you. I know. Okay, can you say it in
2: like 10 seconds or less? Okay, so. I'm sure at some point you'll respond maybe, but you, you bring up the scripture where it says, as many of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And you also mention how, you know, not all who are of Abraham are children of Abraham, right? I think this text makes it very clear that it's those who believe those who have faith. Okay. I think in the same way, you're not in the church unless you true, you truly believe you have saving faith, but if you've been baptized into Christ and by virtue of being baptized into Christ you have put on Christ, it seems to me that infant baptism leaves the door open for the language to then say "If you, that you can take off Christ
1: and, and just one, a, one, a one-liner but sort circumcision and my, my point is that Israel receives the sign God commands that Israel receive the sign, the, the issue is not was Israel a believer, the issue is was Ishmael in the household of Abraham. And and so that's, nobody would say, no Presbyterian ought to say, every infant who receives the sign is therefore a true believer or will be a true believer. That wasn't true in circumcision, and that's not true in baptism either.
2: Okay, but I think every Presbyterian would also say that if you are saved, that Christ will keep you and finish the work that he began in you. However, again, if you can put on Christ because you've been baptized into Christ, to reject Christ having been baptized would mean that you could take off Christ.
1: Well, that's true of adult stuff. That, that has nothing to do with infant baptism. Anybody, but and, and I will say that's not what it would mean. But, Sorry. No. I, just, I will say it's, it's not what it means. But also that that's an argument that's not against infant baptism. But that's just about anybody who would make a profession of faith and then say, oh, you know what? On the second that I don't believe. It. Okay, I'm gonna I'm
0: gonna pause you guys because you may be able to answer some of these things as you're answering people's questions. But we got a late start. I'm gonna try to get you guys out close to when we're supposed to be finishing. One Question, so think, you know, make a good choice
1: about what your question will be. Is there anybody that
3: wants to go first and ask your question? Nate, here we go. Say so your name into the mic, too. <laughs> yeah. We love you. Yeah, right? Dave, one of you could, uh, I'm someone who recently, within the last year, converted to Christianism. One thing that was real important for me in that journey was the birth- the exact reference to First Corinthians where Paul talks about uh, that the children of a believer are holy. I wonder if you can maybe you know, lay out the Presbyterian position on that I, I think that's a more
1: uh, So First Corinthians 7 First Corinthians 7 uh, Paul will, uh, in, in talking really about uh, being unequally yoked and about and even about uh, so, so being married to an unbeliever. What Paul writes there is that if if one of the parents is a believer, then then your children, he says, he, first of all he says don't don't be divorced. That you know, even though you should be unequally yoked, if you're already married, you shouldn't divorce because through through your um, through through that Coming into union through that marriage, your spouse might be saved. He says that's why your child. Otherwise, your children will be will be unsafe. But as, as it is, they are or will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy, right? And so the the idea they are holy it's not that they are pure without sin, holy in terms of being set apart, holy in terms of being uh, covenant children. And so that's an important uh, verse because, indeed, again, this idea of. of, of Household, um, household, uh, co- co- covenantal baptism and, and covenantal uh, standing before God is there implied by policy calls the children of a single uh, parent, uh, holy, set apart. How you set apart, what you set apart, through, by covenant and by the covenant of that is that was given. Presumably, then those children were. Baptized. Who wants to ask another question?
0: Don't be shy,
4: y'all. No, no. Alright, our new friend Joe, here you go. Hold it, really close. Unfortunately, it'll be the one of you, You alluded to your name again? Oscar. Oscar, you alluded to it. Alluded to it earlier. I heard the term mentioned one time. I mean the two of them. And that was the term body of Christ either one of you believe that god <laughs> and either one of you believe that god had a prophetic covenant program for israel and then a mystery unrevealed program to the apostle paul and in, and in those two programs baptism was different from each category, from each group. Do you understand the question?
2: Perhaps Juan Carlos in answering you might help me understand the question. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, so so the short answer is, is no, I don't believe that God had a revelation to Israel and a different revelation to the Apostle Paul. Uh, entailing different plans, but, and and that baptism therefore would be different from one group or or the other. However, I I think that I I will take this opportunity to sort of speak to the issue of different kinds of baptism. Uh, In in, uh, Matthew 3.9, when John the Baptist is is doing his thing on on the Jordan River. He tells the, the um, Sadducees and the Pharisees, "He does not presume uh, to say we are, uh, we have Abraham for our father." As he's calling the people to repent and to be baptized. Now, the the baptism of John the Baptist is doing is not the same baptisms that that we have now in the church. But the question that I would have is, what what does John the Baptist mean when he says, do not presume, he's telling the Jews this, do not presume to say we have Abraham as our father. Why does he say that? The reason, very likely why he is saying that, is because of proselyte baptism. So we know from the Talmud, and particularly from the writings of Hillel, for example, so Hillel was the grandfather of Amalia, who, uh, who of course, was the rabbi under which Paul I and mean, whom Paul studied. Hillel writes in the Talmud. I think actually it's a comment against the Mishnah that uh, with respect to proselytes, that they were to be circumcised and then they were to receive. Baptism and, and the baptism that proselytes. So proselytes are, are Gentiles who are becoming, are in the process of becoming Jews. Okay, and so the and, and the process in which, the way in which this worked was that the men uh, would would be they, they would be asked, you know, to, to affirm their decision to become Jewish. They would be told that hey, this is what it means. This is these are the difficulties that you will face. do you still want to do it, they would say yes. And so then they would be circumcised, and then they. Would would be baptized, and the baptism would be the baptism would be a, an immersion that they would go through, and, and what it would represent it, it was this cleansing of, of the defilement of death. Essentially, right? if you were a gentile, then you were spiritually dead, and you would be you would be cut you would be circumcised, but then the defilement had to be removed, and it was from these cleansings. Now, here's how it's interesting. Infant males of these Gentiles also would follow the same process. They would be circumcised and then they would be washed as it were. Women would also be washed and be baptized, both adult women and uh, and uh, an infant woman would also do this washing that was just called the baptism. Now, this is this was the pro- this was the practice for conversions into Judaism from Gentiles by the first century. And uh, so, when John is now saying, "Repent and be baptized," this is something that Gentiles could then do. This is why he says, "Don't presume to say to me, you are uh, we are we have Abraham as a father.'" Was this doesn't apply to us. Um, so there was a different kind of baptism. The baptism of John is is, is an Old Testament kind. And he, John is the last prophet of the Old Covenant, and he's doing a baptism that is different than what we experience uh, in the New Covenant, which I would, of course, say is, is a replacement of, of circumcision. And Paul would you know, intimate that much, I would say, in Colossians 2.11. I always thought the baptism that you were talking about,
0: where someone was
1: is different from baptism yes, now? Yes, it is different, it is, so, so it's different, but it's, called, but it's a washing, so the word baptism, by the way, means, it doesn't just mean a, a dunking, it also means a, a ceremonial washing. You see that in Hebrews, for example, you see that I in First Corinthians as well, It we have it in certain different places. I, Jesus is, the Pharisees don't like the fact that Jesus doesn't baptize, doesn't wash before a meal, and neither do his disciples. They don't mean, hey, go and shower, or, go, go and dunk into a pool. What they say is the ritual cleansing. Yeah. In the book of Hebrews, we read in Hebrews 9 of the referring to the, the biblical washing of of purification, which were done by sprinkling, they're called baptisms, washings is the translation, and it was actually through, through sprinkling. So it, it, even though the, the, the typical meaning of baptism does imply immersion and overwhelming unity, as Oscar said, it doesn't always do that, even in the Bible. Uh, it does imply ritual washing, and sometimes it's through sprinkling and the awesome.
0: okay, who else has a question? question. I know James has one, Mr. Church of Christ over there.
4: I'm working on it.
0: Anybody else? Don't be shy. New cokes. Beth? Yeah, I, guess. I saw you take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> While she throws her baby into the arms of her problem. Uh okay. okay, so my question's oh. crossed. Okay, so. good. Good, oh. because
1: she has the mic. <laughs> and
4: so, I was trying to think of the best way of asking this. It's a question about, like, age of accountability, basically. Um, And so my question would be, like, what counts as a profession of faith? And so you, when you were giving your presentation, you mentioned adults a lot, um, which is fine. And if you say it's an adult, then what for a four-year-old from coming forward to their parents and saying, Trying to be cheeky, like, this Jesus you've told me loves me my entire life, I believe that he loves me, and I trust your judgment, and I want to follow him, like, what prohibits a four-year-old or a three-year-old, or, uh, like, I've known a child who's three, and just coming to her parents and saying, I want, to, I want Jesus in my heart, like, uh, what's, yeah, what determines a profession of faith, and then how, as, like, faith grows as you can, mature and get older and have further understanding and educate yourself uh, what is actually what like counts basically. And uh, I, yeah, the reason I ask that question, the reason I asked that question is because I actually know way more people who profess faith as young children. And walked away from their faith and Then I do people who were raised as if they were a part of the covenant community of Christ and then walked away from their faith and so
2: and that's just anecdotal unknowns that's just Sure, sure um, I think here First John has a lot to say about just the walking away um, and I'm not casting any judgments on your students but uh, we hear that they went out from us because they were not of us had they been of us they would have remained with us and by leaving they proved they were not of us so again I'm not casting judgment on whether those students are saved or not or are going to ever come back. Uh, But I think it's a great question regarding age. And, yes, this debate tends to, like, break down into, like, do you need to be older or can you be a baby? And uh, I'm sorry if I made it that extreme sounding because that's not actually uh, how I uh, would work that out in my theology. Um, I would go back to the fact that it's a command Right? First to the disciples to go and make, to the apostles to go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, and so on. So here, obviously, you, you infer that they can respond in faith and can then learn and be discipled but also Acts 2 tells us repent be baptized so that is actually where I would key in to answer your question is what is repentance Uh, repentance is a turning about right you're heading in one direction and you turn and you head in the other direction so we are being pulled uh, towards sin by sin by our sinful nature at least um, in my soteriology and to repent is to make a clear acknowledgement and a confession that Lord I've been doing things my way I'm wrong my sin separates me Lord from you and I have to make a turnabout and now get on your program as it were this takes um, sufficient reasoning capacity and I think one of the sort of pre-existing conditions to repentance is an awareness of sin, a clear awareness that you have offended a holy God, that your sin separates you from being able to enter into his presence. And to repent is also a confession and a contrition, uh, effectively asking God for his mercy, asking him for forgiveness and for him to save you. So I don't uh, for one second deny that there could be some very mature th- four-year-olds, five-year-olds that could make such uh, a grasp of their sin, could truly understand that there is a a gap that must be bridged and that in, in order for that to sort of like Instantiate itself at least in that person's life, that that first component is repentance. Now, I would also say that it's a gift of that it's a gift by the Holy Spirit, and that also even uh, faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's neither here nor there. I know we disagree on at least that, but the the person must be able, however old he or she is, to reasonably repent based on an awareness of sin, and and I think that can be sussed out with basic questions. I mean, Jesus himself says, don't keep the children from coming to me. He loves them, obviously, or that uh, we must become like a child uh, or else we can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So uh, again, for the listeners, I never wanted to put an age on it, but I definitely want to put uh, a capacity to reason such that one can repent because of our awareness of sin and of God's holiness
0: you
4: up? You ready? You want me so to do this one or that? Oh, yeah, just talking to that. That's okay. great. Let me know when. Okay. Does church church history explicitly demonstrate the baptism of infants? Can you, can you start over and be a little louder? Okay. For like in the like Oscar loud. Oscar? <laughs> oh, wow. That's impressive. Okay. Does church history explicitly demonstrate the baptism of infants as a widespread practice pre-Nicaea? with Justin Martyr writing there is pronounced over him who chooses to be born again and has repented of his sins and Tertullian if anyone understands the weighty importance of baptism he will fear its reception more than its delay sound faith is secure of salvation does this not show believers baptism
0: just the first part again the, the question that you Okay, does
4: church history explicitly demonstrate the baptism of infants as a widespread practice pre Nicaea? Yes, yeah, so the answer would
1: be yes. Even in Tertullian's writing, which, which you're right, Tertullian actually writes opposing the practice of inter-baptism, but he he uh says that that's what that, the, that is the practice of the church he's not in favor of it he writes against it but already by the by time to is writing late second century it's it's, uh, it's already the practice of the church Irenaeus writes about inter-baptism being the practice of the church origen origen writes about uh in, in, in favor of it and says that this has been the practice since the time of the apostles um, Augustine writes the same thing by the way he says that the church is not known another time or, or a different mode of baptism uh, or a different kind of baptism other than infant baptism of course he himself was not baptized as an infant his mother withheld that because of the idea by that point that baptism cleansed you from your sins so therefore they wanted to max- they, you wanted to get you the maximum time, right? and so let's, let's sit as much as you can as you said then of course it was risky but, no, yeah. nevertheless the, the practice of infant baptism was there. Hippolytus uh, of Rome also, uh, late second century, writes of infant baptism as a practice of the term. The, the um, practice of believers' baptism only uh, really does not become a, a major decision, if one could call it that, until the 16th century with so, so yes, historically, and I wouldn't say that that's sufficient to say. Therefore, infant baptism is the right thing. The early church had, you know, things that were wrong got to the rather generation, that that idea of creeping in. However, that is historically the practice. It's also the practice, like I said, this idea of household, even in terms of conversions. Greeks and their children and their wives and their daughters being cleansed from the stain of death uh, as they are converted into Judaism. Uh, This was something that was done to infants also. um, And it it wasn't wasn't problematic for the Jews. This was the practice of that. Are you sure
0: you don't want to come back on that? Because that's a pretty... That's not a nail in the
2: coffin, but it's... Well, yeah, I wouldn't say it's a nail in the coffin for the reasons that Juan Carlos articulated, uh, that there are plenty of wrong beliefs, wrong teachings, even wrong practices that are promoted and, you know, enacted by the early church. So it's not as much of a, you know, silver bullet as one might think. Um, And here's... I'll just say this. Here's what I find interesting is that so much again in my view of this particular debate hinges on our hermeneutic principles and where those start and I think that you're a lot more thoughtful than this but I think a lot of people that arrive at infant baptism either arrive at it through tradition or because there's there's a strong sort of tie to covenant theology whereas my hermeneutic tends to be sort of not simpler, but a lot more, and I hate to use the word flexible, but like where the scripture leads. And I think that you have to go to seminary before you arrive at a plain sense meaning of the scripture, teaching infant baptism. You have to
0: go to seminary to understand the plain sense reading?
2: No, that reading it in its plain sense would lead to infant baptism. Basically, if you're reading it for its plain sense, you wouldn't come away with baptism. You would end up in seminary, read it again with covenant theology as your uh, hermeneutical lens, and then you would arrive at so it.
0: you're saying pre-seminary, you would read it as believer baptism,
2: okay. Is what I'm saying.
0: Okay, all right. We've got just a few more minutes. Who else has a question here? Uh, so,
3: uh,
2: hey, what's <laughs> up? Uh, so your last comment about, uh, about
3: interpreting the Old Testament and the New Testament in terms of covenant theology and progression of it and having to go to seminary in order to uh, like take away the baptism.
2: Certain seminaries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: Sorry. <laughs> certain, uh, certain seminaries. Um, so I want uh, to ask you what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 10 when he, when he invokes uh, baptism into Moses as an example for the church in the wilderness today. It says, For I do not want you to be all our brothers, but our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. He um, continues, it says verse 5 nevertheless most of them brought us on trees, for they were not overthrown for they were overthrown in the wilderness so there's there's this covenant community that is baptized into Moses it says all of them were baptized what Paul refers to as baptized uh, in this Exodus event and then he, he says in verse 6 now these things took place as an example for us um, and, and viewing the church as a continuation of this spiritual people of Israel and your concerns that you brought up with uh, presumption about children uh, and even defining what the church is uh, Paul doesn't seem to be uh, invoking the same kind of boundaries and actually uses the, the exodus event of the wilderness church to be an example for us. so mm-hmm. how, how would you say that Paul is moving on from, from the former view of how the covenant community was built to a, a substantially different one that does not include church
2: Yeah, I I do agree that it's a great question. And and what I personally love about the scripture is that you you get so much... Consistently, in terms of like uh, metaphorical language, or you know, just connections and references and allusions and so on, uh, to passing through water. I mean, here I'm thinking of like Naaman for my side, right? Like that being totally submerged. Now we don't submerge people seven times, but as a as a sign, God could have chosen. God could have chosen for the healing to come about it other way. But it's it's the obedience aspect of it that that really concerns me. I don't think that the Jews had a choice. Uh, they were gonna. You Either die at the hands of the Egyptians or they were going to cross uh, and of course for self-preservation they're going to cross through the parting of the Red Seas and so on. Um, so I I personally don't see like that wholesale saving of the Jewish people as, a, as indicative of that anyone who's baptized is saved obviously because he says then some of them just totally ran afoul and ended up dying in the wilderness Um, so I don't I I guess I'm not making the same connection that you seem to be making Uh, but and I promise I'm not just trying to evade the question, but in, in other places that talk about, uh, baptism and what that does, I'm here thinking about Nicodemus and John three and how he tries to approach Christ with a question about, you know, really he's approaching him with flattery and he just comes out and says, you must be born again. Right. And then Nicodemus maybe cheekily asks, well, how can a man, a grown man, which he is, uh, not to be graphic, but go back into his mother's womb. Um, For a second time And then Jesus Again Suspects that he's just Trying to be ironic And he says No You must be born again Of the water And of the spirit So The To me The new birth happens Upon profession of faith And then the next step So to be born again And then the next step Is of the water And then of the spirit Which is the same Order that we see In Acts 2.38 Um In that This again is, Is a gift And this happens after the profession of belief, uh, I don't. I don't think that the people who were to survive or to live uh, at the moment of the exodus crossing the Red Sea really felt like they had a choice. Um, I mean, I could keep going, but I've. I've I feel like I've addressed it at least in the way that I understood the question.
1: Yeah, so I, I would say that that's a, a great text uh, to bring up. Aaron. And at the least of which is because they use the word baptism, not used in the in the way of overwhelming or being uh, immersing. They they they're baptizing to Moses in the sense that they are they they are set apart for the law, right, which is what Moses represents, and and yet these who would be circumcised, who are set apart from the law, most of them are going to, of course, die in the wilderness even though they had received the sign of covenant membership, because again, there's a distinction between the visible and the invisible church, always has been. Um, one, one more uh, point that uh, was brought up earlier uh, by, by Oscar with respect to Jesus saying, "Let the children come to me." He says, "Let the little children come to me." And so, so the word there is for infants. And mothers would bring, were, were carrying their, their their infants to him, the disciples want to stop them, and Jesus is incensed by this. He says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. So if, when Jesus is saying this, still within the old covenant, let's say, before the covenant of the Spirit, um, there, the the, the kingdom of God belongs to the little children. But suddenly, something happens and tragically, though the gospel is more expansive, clearly more expansive than we could have ever imagined, you know, it includes Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, and even those who are far off, tragically, children are suddenly stupid. It doesn't make sense. And again, I think the, one of the reasons why we're having this disconnect is because the the, the reform position, and I would say the Biblical position, does not say that only those who receive, only those who truly believe receive the covenant sign. That's never true. It wasn't true from the beginning. Abraham is the man of faith. He receives the sign of circumcision because of something that's already been given to him. Righteousness has already been given to him. And then he receives the sign but he's not the only one. So does everybody in this household, including the children, even those who were far away. So somebody texted in
0: this follow-up question, which maybe should have been at the very beginning. I should have asked each of you to say this, but maybe you can quickly do it now. What would you each say is the purpose of baptism? This was I'll use that as
2: Yeah, well, from my view, the purpose of baptism is first of all obedience. Um, meaning that it is a command that is given to believers. So, first of all, you are baptized because you believe, because you have made a public profession, because you now identify with Christ. And secondly, it's to create a picture uh, of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which, again, in Romans is outlined Uh, Or sorry, in Romans, that connection is made very clearly that you identify with his death in your submersion and you identify with his resurrection and new life in coming out of the water. Uh, So it it fulfills both of those purposes. It doesn't save you, um, but we do obey when we believe this command, this demand of the Christian.
1: Would, uh, I would agree, it's a sacrament that is given by God, commanded by Christ in Matthew 28, uh, and and is, it, even though it itself does not represent salvation, like circumcision did not either, uh, it is it does represent an ingrafting into the covenant community, here, an ingrafting into Christ, just like circumcision did in the Old Testament, and uh, therefore, uh, it represents being part of the household of God, covenantally. It is not truly concerning covenantally, and, uh, and so, so therefore, Anybody who is in that household is to receive the sign of baptism, just like the nails within the sign of baptism. Okay, we're gonna do last call, like they do at a
0: bar. Anybody? No, Jackie. I see your
4: name. Your, your, your. Say your name. Uh, Noah, I have a question for Oscar. Uh, it seems like
2: immersion is a big thing in your framework, right? Like that's a point you keep hitting. Um,
4: the Greek the Greek
2: Orthodox throw away the infants that they baptize.
4: <laughs> so now
2: now you might just answer like, well, it's just part of a uh like, I like, like kind of you know, like, a, you have a wide array of points that you're making, and if one group doesn't adhere to, like, doesn't do the thing that you say they shouldn't do, right, sprinkle. That's okay because there are other theological problems in the front. But I'm just wondering, like, does that change anything for you if an infant Baptist were
4: to immerse that child? And also, for children, like,
0: little bit
2: of water could be a lot of water <laughs> yeah I mean I would say that in that regard they're doing it better <laughs> uh, in in that regard but it's not so much that I'm like really committed to immersion even though that I am uh, but that it always comes after repentance in the various places that I see it in the book of Acts uh, especially in the book of Acts uh, it. Comes after repentance. So if if I'm going to have a sticking point, whether it's immersion or does repentance have to come before, I'm going to way more emphasize the repentance as opposed to the mode, though I think immersion is more correct theologically speaking. All I picture when
0: you were talking about that is people that you know, after like hours after the baby's born, put them in a swimming pool because they're supposed to so just naturally know how to swim. <laughs> like and you're baptized also. Okay. So guys, we are we're wrapping up. I know not everybody asked a question. If you're dying to ask a question, you can always ask after we're done. But is there any maybe one last like I'm gonna scoot in under the wire and ask. Yeah, here you go. <laughs> is it is it possible? Oh here we go.
3: That you're both ah! right. Oh, I didn't say both wrong. Oh, no, you're both correct. And that it has nothing to do with water, but the immersion is in the Word of God. And it's happening during the it, it, As a child, as a new believer, as, a, as you're being immersed by your parents in the Word of God. I mean,. Yes, we do have examples of, of immersion and of water, but does it does it always mention water?
0: it says um, fire.
2: I would say lots of things are possible. Certain things are less likely. I think it's less likely that we're both right. Um, and 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 only because there's there's. Too much biblical data, where we are, where we have baptism modeled for us, especially in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He goes into the waters of baptism, and we just have too much history, and too much textual evidence to say that it's 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 something that we can disregard and not uh, have as part of our sacramental worship.
1: And, and with respect, yes, I would agree. Uh, I, I don't think that we can. We can. We can both be right, given that we're. At, at certain points, I think we both agree. It may points, in fact, exactly. but the distinctives, of course, are different for that very reason. Even the going into the water, I would disagree. Right. So the, the, the word for into there doesn't always mean go into in terms of immersion. Uh, you can you can go into. Uh, in terms of position, go, go down into where the actual water is, but it isn't either immersed in it. The, the uh, Philip and, and uh, the Ethiopian unit, for example, they're in the negative, in the desert, and they find some water there, and they both go into the water uh, and, and are baptized. It doesn't necessarily mean that they immerse, uh, that they both would immerse. Uh, it could very well be sprinkling or pouring, but in, in, in my perspective, and I think maybe even in Oscars, The mode of baptism, even though we might say we might prefer, well in the case of El Oscar, I think it the best way, I, I, In my in my decision. If you're immersed or strangled or poured, that's less important than whether or not there's water. I, I do think that the biblical um, description of baptism is one in which water is always either explicitly given or presupposed. And so, to, to change the the, the the two elements that must be there are: it must be in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it must be in water. Must be the element that is used. Uh, that's that's the the reformers presbyterian position and, turn, and I'll just end with this there is another sacrament of course and that's the sacrament of the word supper and there we would say because of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 for example there is an age of discernment there not an explicit activity, but you must discern the body and there is an um, admonition against taking it unworthily. clearly not for infants even as the Passover was not for infants but, but with baptism just like circumcision was for infants the more expensive from the baptism continues to be for infants it's not just for
0: Okay, well, I am going to, everybody here can stick around and talk to these guys if you want, but I'm going to close this out for the recording purposes and just thank you guys for for debating this and and giving us your wisdom, and I really appreciate that. I will remind you all that if... (laughs) Everyone here and everyone listening, uh, if you want any information about Theology on Tap, our events, our podcasts, any of that, you can find all that information at HoustonTOT.com. We've got some really fun events coming up. I don't know exactly when this is going to post, but in June we have an event coming up about the Holy Spirit. That's going to be feisty. And in August we have Dr. James Tour, who's a um, renowned uh, chemist and uh, nano scientist coming to speak, and that's going to be great. So check out our events, HoustonTOT.com, and we encourage you, as always, to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed. Now, I want to do a couple quick logistical things with y'all, even though we're done with the recording, and you can ask more questions, but I want to remind you guys, if you haven't already signed up... Sign up for our newsletter you can sign up um, to be getting invitations to these sorts of things in the future june 13th mark your calendars you guys it's going to be a doozy we have josh feinberg who's a john macarthur full cessationist believes that certain gifts were just for the early church and should not be you know happening today in those offices don't exist today and then we have a woman named kelly Edmiston, who's a vineyard pastor and is full away gifts let's go it's gonna be it's gonna be really good um, and then our, our panel will be a uh, lots of other positions along that continue. so that's great and then the last thing I'll say because I'd be a bad fundraiser if I didn't is if you enjoy this kind of stuff and you want to see it continue either you yourself or maybe someone you know you invite them to financially support us and all of that information is also on our website or you can ask me about it but yeah thank you guys for doing this this is awesome